Welcome to Whiskey in the Arts podcast, a collaborative exploration of creation and perception, with your hosts, Kurt Protzman and Dan Kroll. Right, my approach in making music is always trying to perfect it, right? So analyze what I've done and see what else I can add whatever is happening at the moment. Uh, so, you know, if I'm improvising with a singer, trying to come up with some ideas, whatever comes to mind uh, at that moment, if I just continue to go with that direction rather than um, trying to like come up with the perfect plan, perfect solution. Uh, and I used to uh, revise a song, you know, over like 20 times, 50 times, you know, version 50, final, final, this is the end. Uh, and I've, I've done that for clients as well. You know, I have clients who work with me, ended up doing like 30 versions of it and it's still not done. Um, but music these days, just the, the, uh, the amount of music that comes out these days is so vast. It's, there's so much, it's just almost turning, you know, like an Instagram post at this point, uh, which is kind of, kind of crazy how, uh, how fast we're evolving in this digital world that I feel like it's almost less important to make something perfect. It's more about the feeling and the vibe. And if you like it and you know, it's great, then push it out. Don't, don't think about the perfection. Don't think about, you know, uh, tweaking anything. Just, just do it really. Um, you know, the, the song I put on the playlist, um, nothing to lose from the whole thing from, um, improvising on it, producing it, the vocals, the recording, everything is pretty much done in like two hours and a half, the entire mm -hmm. song, uh, including the production. Uh, we only did some like additional harmony uh, and a little bit of finesse with the, the percussions and, you know, the mixing stuff uh, later on. But I would say like 90% of that song was made basically like in two hours. Uh, which is which is kind of incredible, but I think that's that's what I enjoy doing music the most. Uh, whenever I write music or produce music, uh, especially in the pop world, I feel like that spontaneity of living at that moment, and then you kind of have that euphoric moment where you just like creating, loving the music, enjoying the moment. That really, you know, not sure if that answered your question. I feel like <laughs> kind of went to a different direction, but uh, yeah, no, yeah. The, uh, I think the thing that fascinates me about that, and, and I think it does tie back into, uh, you know, making whiskey or other, or other art forms, you are trying to capture a moment. Then that moment isn't necessarily going to behave or stick around according to, you know, your agenda. It's, it's there and you either capture it or you don't. And and there's something alive about it. There's something sort of uh, the, the the magic of that moment uh, is not something that can be just. It's it's not something where you can turn a switch on and off and it and it happens again and again and again. It's mm -hmm. a thing that you that you nail or you don't or you you spend the rest of a session trying to recapture when the first couple of takes were really what that what you were trying to get across in the first place <clears throat> that's the part i imagine from your perspective not not just as a uh a composer but a uh an engineer and producer of other people's uh, uh vision that bit has to be 
uh, and incredibly complicated because you are you are internalizing somebody else's creative process, but you've become part of that creative process. Mm -hmm. And so it's 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 no longer that that one person's sole vision. But as the as the person who is is producing and engineering that that piece of music for uh, the original composer, you have a lot of you've got a, you hold a lot of sway. Yeah. Uh, uh, how, how is it? How does that work? I mean, how do you how do you take something like that and inject your own creativity and your own skill set and your own um, uh, breadth of experience? Uh, while it remains essentially that person's creative yeah. state. So, I mean, that's, that's, that's a really good question. Um, a lot of times, right. Um, I would say definitely personally, I've realized my forte is definitely, uh, being a recording engineer for, uh, vocal, uh, vocalist, uh, and also the composers, especially a lot of composers these days, you know, songwriters, they, they sing. So they, they're mm -hmm. the person who basically write the song and and on the record right so in that scenario a lot of times um being a great recording engineer we're trying to bring out the best performance uh of the the vocalist and how how, how do you do that it's it's quite interesting is it's, first of all they have to be relaxed right but then it's finding the the the, the different moments where you know like okay maybe she should do a harmony here maybe uh, you should do a, a doubling here. Maybe this is how the vocal should be. Oh, why don't we add a, a little alib here, right? Oh, maybe this alib can be a hook where after the chorus, we can insert that hook and repeat it more. And then now the song all of a sudden opens up to a different world, right? And then maybe I might suggest, oh, you know what? This part actually doesn't need drums. Let's take that out for a brief one measure to give space to the vocals. There's so many ways... Um, I think I think music in general is a super collaborative process, and that collaborative process is what makes music different. Um, you know, of course, you can produce music on your own, and a lot of people successfully do that. But personally, I realize uh, the process of collaboration usually, if you collaborate with somebody who can resonate with you, right? Usually, the outcome of that music becomes something very, very different. That if you if you collaborate with another person with the same song, will be completely different. And I'm not talking just about mm -hmm. uh, collaborate with like writing a song or collaborate, let's say, a, with a guitarist. I'm talking about collaborating with a different recording artist at a different space uh, or a different mixing engineer. Uh, so everyone who is involved in the record, everyone who is involved in making the music process. Uh, will contribute something different to it. Yeah. So that's uh, that's that's a lot of wow. people don't know about that. It's like they think, oh, the songwriter does everything. The singer is amazing. So therefore, the record is going to come out amazing because, you know, the artist is amazing. But it's, there's actually a lot of um, nuances and a lot of things that make something so incredible usually come up from a lot of collaborative process. And that's why you see a lot of artists, they don't, once they make it right once they become popular basically make it in their career they don't really switch those uh collaborators so they usually have a few same few of the same co-writers or the same backup singers or the same engineer who recorded vocals or the same uh, mix engineer who mixed their records because they understand their each other's visions and then that 
that outcome is the result of the collaboration of those people all collectively together, not just the artists themselves. Yeah. Hope that kind of it sounds a bit like the process of making a movie. Yeah. Uh, in terms of somebody, I mean, the the, the somebody's got to be there to to have the the objective viewpoint. So if you're if you're an actor uh, on set and and you're trying to make a thing happen in real time, somebody's got to give you the objective viewpoint, i.e., the director, uh, in order for you to have some sense of whether your creative output is serving the greater purpose that that you know either you or the collection of people who set out to make that movie set out to make the movie for whether it's uh you know realizing somebody's screenplay of somebody else's novel or something like that that it's not just a cameras tons of cameras rolling and people just acting because that's what they do or that's what they get paid to do there's got to be some cohesion some kind of point at which uh, a, a hub uh, a, a hub of activity that that drives that project from a from a from a singular point of momentum that's fed by multiple sources, uh, which I think is 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 super fascinating about all those kinds of you know a movie, a piece of music, a piece of art, a bottle of whiskey, uh, the contents of a bottle of whiskey. They didn't pre-exist. You're you're creating a thing that's never existed before, and the only the only reference point you have is either the sound in your head, or the the combination of the visuals and the sound in your head and the inspiration that drove you to do it in the first place. But you are creating a thing that's never existed before, and so the vision for that, the that's I think why people probably they come to you because you, uh, and this is me speculating because we haven't worked together on that level, but. I would imagine that it requires you to be an empath and a really good listener because uh, they wouldn't trust you with their, their thing with this precious thing. If you weren't treating it in such a way that they felt the outcome reflected what they had in their that's head. Right, in the first that's right. Place. Yeah. There, there are times where uh, it's actually pretty, I mean, at this point I've worked with so many artists. Um, it's very easy to tell when you click with somebody or not. Uh, just because what they like and what they don't like, mm. uh, you know, like what takes, uh, you know, like vocal takes, for example, a lot of things, uh, it's, it's quite obvious, you know, just even one session, like for an hour, you already know, like, oh, yeah, I, I click with that person, or I don't click with that person. And, and you know, there's no dis disrespect or anything. It's really just uh, a preference, right? But then sometimes, you know, um, you challenge each other. Uh, sometimes at a, you always try, I mean, if, if it's a paying client, uh, then, you know, I always have to kind of like accommodate their needs. Right. I'm, I'm quite flexible on that end. Sure. Uh, but then, you know, there, there are times I, I will try to create, um, provide a critical, um, what's that called? Constructive crit criticism. I uh, say why we shouldn't be doing this. We should do this instead. Uh, and then trying to use, um, other reference points meaning like other artists' songs that have been successful to kind of prove my point, like, hey, I think we should do it that way to make this sound better. Uh, and some some will say yes, that they will be convinced. Um, and in general, usually if that happens, uh, they'll like me more. <laughs> but uh, if that didn't happen, then they then, <laughs> then goodbye. Um, they'll move on. So, yeah. so what's that like when you're doing a film mm. score? Um 
you're not interacting with those actors. You're either doing it either while they're filming and and you know the story, you're doing it after when you're kind of watching the movie. But there, I mean, it's virtually, no, it's not collaborative, is it? It still is. How's that process? A lot of people don't know about that. Um, Because I will say film scoring is like one of the toughest jobs. I think it's harder than a collaborative. It's not a real... You think it's a collaborative process, but in some ways it really is not because what you really want to do ultimately is to fulfill the producer's or the director's vision of that film. So usually before I even start working on or take on any film scoring project, uh, I always talk to the director a lot, whoever reached out to me to do this project uh, and really trying to figure out what they want more more than what I want because um that's that's usually um you know i mean obviously there are differences like if i'm hans zimmer today or john williams uh maybe i can do whatever i want Uh, but otherwise uh usually uh i'm trying to get as much reference point as possible okay what you're byron j woo you can do what you want sometimes i do no but i mean there's a big difference if a guy is running i watched Mm -hmm. a, a a reel of a bunch of highlights you know and uh, there's a big difference if you decide, like, I want kind of a castanet sound here, or I want a wailing guitar with like a Floyd Rose getting. I mean, like, it creates a very different thing. And and our, our whole thing on the, on the podcast is talking about, you know, nonverbal forms of communication. So people can say whatever they want within the film or whatever, but that music is uh, mm-hmm. shapes uh, so much of that. And I, you know, what I watched was just it was beautiful, but it seems so complex yeah i mean just it, it really depends and uh film scoring is actually one of the job that i don't take on that much anymore because i think it's the toughest like you really need to take time uh, to be in that moment uh after knowing all the reference point then you start thinking about okay so why exactly should i do what's what's the motive what's the melody here which instrument should i use what timbre of instruments should I use? So like piano, right? A lot of people think piano is piano, but there's upright piano, there's grand piano, there's electric piano, and you can play piano differently and the piano timbre can vary a lot. Like guitars, electric guitar basically have endless of sound timbre. So uh, yeah, it's 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 hard to decide that. And that's why I think uh, it's, uh, I, I admire a lot of uh, film composers um, and that's also another reason why most of the film composers who are doing these big Hollywood budget films, it's not just them. They actually have a bunch of composers behind them to do the orchestration, to do you know all this stuff. Um, I, I, based on my my knowledge, I don't know the exact details, but uh, even for example, like Hans Zimmer, um, a lot of his film scores, he actually just do a little bit of the motif, so the main melody, kind of like the timbre, like what they're trying to achieve, kind of like the big picture stuff. But any details or any kind of like the music feel in between the scenes are actually done by the people under his uh, production house. So, you know, they they basically just do the broad strokes and then the rest of the details are filled in by uh, all the other people. Uh, So at the end, you know, it it still turns into a collaborative process in some ways. They just, uh, they plant the seed and and then they let... Uh, somebody else to nurture it and let it grow, uh, which is really cool. That's a that's a, a really interesting way of looking at that process. No, I didn't I didn't know that. 
uh, is I've just always kind of imagined that, uh, you know, you've got this big screen and you're watching the movie and, and you're trying to come up with themes uh, and, and trying to sort of hear the orchestration in your head. And then you sprint over to whatever your, your uh, compositional device is. I've seen, you know, uh, particularly film scores that are being recorded by live uh, orchestras and stuff. They're huge, huge yeah. scores. And, you know, somebody, you know, obviously there's software that does a lot of that, uh, but somebody's figured out what instrument's playing what where. And it makes complete sense that a guy like Hans Zimmer would have a staff of people and, and uh, uh, composers working for him to work the details of that out because he's, He's just not, you know, it's, his time is, his, yeah. you know, he's Hans Zimmer. He's he, he the, the maximizing the the, the mm-hmm. output. Uh, if you're Hans Zimmer, is a is a is a really really big deal. And, and to your point, there's a lot of money riding on those on those yeah. scores uh, and a, and a lot of reputations at stake. That's the pressure's got to be. Obviously, he's responded well to it, yeah. but uh, the pressure in that case has got to be. Uh, intense and uh, who so who has in that situation who's got the who's got the final creative say typically is it the director is it the is it the 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 the, the person that wrote say, the um say, uh, screenplay uh, or my guess is um let's let's continue to use Hans Zimmer since we talk about him uh he will be the one who <laughs> communicate with the director uh well you know and because he is the composer of the original idea uh and then they figure it out what needs to be changed, uh, what needs to be done. Uh, and then he kind of goes back to talk to his team, say, okay, this part needs to be changed. We don't like the timbre here. Let's take all the low strings. Let's add a brass instead. Let's add a flute instead. Uh, maybe we don't need any of this orchestration. We just need uh, a guitar note holding it, sustain it. <laughs> That's it. You know, um, so usually right. uh, they are like the... The, the the thinker right the the, the people who who decide uh, what ideas are which uh this i can kind of talk about uh, a cool anecdote of this so i was in the project with a grammy not nominated uh singer uh composer um and then um it was a quite a big project there was a, a director from berkeley there was a, a very famous I, i'm just not going to disclose the names here but a very famous jazz pianist, sure, uh, and also a very famous film scorer who has done you know tons, tons and tons of Hollywood films, and we and I was uh, kind of like the record, like a demo recording uh, engineer at the time for that meeting, and they are just tr- they are still composing, so they're just trying to they're discussing how to orchestrate the song, like what's the idea of it, uh, and what's really funny is these people, right? They're they're at the top of the game, they have been in this industry for years. You would expect that they would be talking about which chord they should be using, what key they should be using, what instruments they should be using. But at the end of the day, for two hours, nobody talks about anything that has to do with music technique or music language stuff. Two hours, it's all about conceptual emotions, ideas, which totally blew me away. I realized they were they they went super uh, philosophical with their approach, more so than like oh this is like the core that we should use because this major core uh, you know major nine has this kind of quality minor is set you know these type of typical uh, you know musical language you you expect them to talk about that but 
No, they're talking about paintings.、Mm-hmm. They're talking about food. They're referencing, you know, all sorts of other stuff other than music to kind of get the point across, which I find that very interesting. They did not talk even one bit about somebody else's music or reference anything specific about music.、Um, but yeah, it's it's quite interesting to hear them discuss all these details. You know,、um, you, you know, you know what's funny about that? I'd heard I'd heard a story. I think、uh, that's exactly what Aerosmith did when they were doing the soundtrack、mm. for Armageddon. I think、uh, definitely that was the that was <laughs> the creative was process. Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure that it was. <laughs> Um, and I, I want to get back to this idea of、um, conveying emotion、uh, as the center, as, as the centerpiece for pretty much all these types of pursuits: uh, uh, music, visual arts,、uh, liquid arts,、uh, the culinary arts. None of these things happen as 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 rote exercises when they're done. When they reach the pinnacle of what's possible within those media, they're not done as a as a road exercise, and they're not done as a, as a flexing of the chops. They're done to convey at the you know as as your anecdote points out, they're done to convey、uh, human emotions that are、uh, indicative of the human condition that humans all experience, and it, and that sort of thing ties people together. In ways that are are unpredictable and that are、um, interpreted by the individual in the own in the individual's own sort of tone of voice, and there's not you know as the as the creator of that piece of、uh, the creative arts, you not you just never know how it's going to be perceived. But that's not the point. It's the fact that it was perceived,、uh, and I, so we'll get back to that. But I, I wanted to、uh, explain to our listeners what it is that we're doing. <laughs> right. <laughs> First of all,、um, uh, this is jeez,、um, I've even lost track of what number episode this is of Whiskey in the Arts podcast.、Um, our guest、uh, is Byron Wu.、Uh, Byron is a, a multi-talented individual. He's a, a music producer. He's an,、uh, an instrumentalist of, of both keyboard and guitar and keytar. I noticed that got called out、mm-hmm. in your bio, and you're playing one in, in one of the shots, which is awesome.、Um, you are, as we've been discussing, you're a music producer and sound engineer. You're also a、uh, DJ, a composer in your own right, and you compose for、uh, for both、uh, film and multimedia.、Uh, so that's a lot. Not to mention, you are.、Um, You generate the social media content for Time Bar in New York City, which is beautifully you. rendered.、Uh, you've got a, a very successful Instagram presence called、uh, Zenith Food.、Uh, Zenith Music obviously is your other Instagram presence that、uh, that that talks about all these these music things. And we met as a function of、uh, a project that、uh, that we did with Glamorangi. And、uh, I think in one of our first conversations,、uh, I'd mentioned the the idea and concept behind this podcast, and you、uh, it sort of、uh, jumped into my head as we've got to talk to this guy because he's not only involved in the the visual arts, the sonic arts, the culinary arts,、uh, he's he's got a, a a distinct interest in in whiskey,、uh, in cocktails. He's working with the guys at Time Bar. This is. This is the kind of when when we put this concept together, you're the kind of guy that we thought of、uh, because of because you got your fingers in so many different pies in that regard, and even though each of those disciplines is distinctly different in terms of the techniques that you bring, maybe the gear that you bring, the、uh, the the technical philosophy that you bring to the execution of the job at hand, but they're all tied together 
as as forms of uh, nonverbal communication and co- the conveyance of emotion. So I, I, that's the angle that I find fascinating. I wanted to introduce my uh, co-host, uh, Kurt Prossman. Hi, Kurt. Uh, how are you doing this evening? How are you feeling? I'm I'm feeling great. Uh, uh, you know, Byron mentioned uh, uh, Hans Zimmer sort of doing the broad brush strokes and then other people filling in the details. I feel that uh, my week... I've really just been filling in details. <laughs> Basically, no broad brush jokes have been allowed to be made. Uh, those were all made for me. Uh, and I'm glad to enter the podcast world. And, and you know, probably uh, probably one of the greatest parts about this starts before it even starts, and it's the research. And uh, By- Byron's been super interesting to, to read about. I am concerned about one thing, though. Full-time creator, uh, which is a great title, part-time photographer and musician, uh, we can do this offline, but I think there's a work-life balance that is not occurring uh, uh, for Byron. Uh, there's just no, there's no possible way uh, that there is a, a, a man whose interest cannot be contained by one Instagram <laughs> handle. Um, uh, and so, and it, yeah, and in fact, I wanted to ask you, Zen yes. is food, music, or, or, or Zen if music. Huh. Is an if what happened? Well, no. So, so, so the the name came from uh, the word uh, zenith. So Z N I T H. Um, so you know, that's okay, yeah, means for like excellence, pinnacle. Uh, so actually, that's yeah, yeah. where the name comes. Yeah. From. Um, but I changed the spelling of it. Uh, just for two reasons, because some people say zenith, some people say zenith, and I like the sound of zenith. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I always like the the word zen because okay. he kind of has that kind of like. You know, just chilling, the vibe, um, you know, uh, it, could, it could go a little bit religious at some point. But like, you know, like just the mood of it. I kind of like the word Zen itself. Yeah. Uh, so that's where the name uh, Zenith uh, came about. And obviously just having that name, uh, it's not that good with the SEO, the search engine optimization. So uh, for Instagram, I added the right, word right. music uh, just to kind of define that. Okay. Yeah. It's a. It sounds okay. like a cool DJ name, you know, at that point. Um, I was trying to do like a, you know, like a, <laughs> the, like a music producer, you know, EDM world, the electronic dance music world. You know, that's that name seems fitting. Uh, so, yeah, I started that. And then, you know, if you look, if you scroll by on my uh, Zenith music feed uh, way, way past, just like towards like the beginning of it, you see some food pictures because uh, I love food. I've been cooking food a lot. And, and, you know, uh, I think in general in my life, uh, as you can see, even though I'm doing a bunch of different things and it seems like I have no time, which which is kind of true, uh, I just love creating things. That's why it doesn't feel like work to me. You know, so anything that involves in creation, a nuance of creating something, uh, that excites me. And that, that doesn't feel like work. So well, that's how this whole thing all interconnected, yeah. which is kind of how, you know, the podcast about the, the, uh, the whiskey uh, and the music, like, you know, everything in the world is connected somehow, even though they, they don't seem to have any connections, which is really cool. Well, I think, I think about you living in New York city and and I was just thinking a ton about New York and and missing New York and missing live music and had my first dose of live music last weekend, which was astounding. My friend's, uh, band, um, uh, the beat brigade here in Omaha, Nebraska. And it, it was just awesome to be after watching live streams that just really, you know, are, are impossible because there's no audience feeding back. Um, I was thinking about 
that work-life balance and all the people working at home now and work and life is all, I heard it described the other day, you know, living at work. And I started out when I was younger and I thought I got to have a bright red kind of, or a bright kind of line or division between work and life. And that's really not what life is for most of us today. And so you find your way in that. And I think you just said it beautifully. You got to love what you're doing. And then, then you're really not, then you're really not working, which is one of those things they tell you in grade school, but for, for, for anybody to be of any of adult age and say, I'm really yeah. doing that uh, is, yeah, is, so is pretty it's, amazing. It's, it's tough, you know? Um, you know, even for music, right? Because I, I can kind of um, speak about this, which a lot of people don't know. Um, when I was uh, first graduating in college, right? So I, I, I work in music industry full time, right? For doing different things. Um, there was like the piano, um, digital piano, uh, teaching software, which is co-founded by Quincy Jones, uh, Playground Sessions, uh, that I was doing part-time there, um, which I'm 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 very thankful for because I'm still there and definitely helps uh, my music career a ton. Um, there's that, That's but great. at the same time, I'm doing a bunch of mixing, film scoring for other clients, and creating my own song, thinking about doing my own album, all that, all the stuff that a musician should be doing, right, to make a living out of it. And then all of a sudden, after about three to four years of grinding like that, which I realized like, oh, wow. Like to a lot of people who look at where my career was heading at that time, that was around 2018, uh, 2016, I would say. Sometime around 2016 to 2018. um, I was getting kind of depressed. I was kind of upset with where I was at. Even though a lot of people were kind of admiring and say, hey, Byron, you made it. You... You can make a living in New York City and doing just what you love, music. And then I realized something was wrong because I, I wasn't too happy about where I was at uh, because I was doing music for other people. And that's literally my full-time job. So every day I'm looking at the in front of my computer, you know, staring at the digital audio workstation and, <laughs> and recording different artists or editing different other artists' vocals or mixing or doing all this stuff that... In some ways, sure, I am contributing to some work that I enjoy doing, and I enjoy the music that I was putting out or helping to put out. Uh, but there's something in me I was just like, I don't feel like my creativity was really being being uh, contributed fully. You know, it was it wasn't like I'm not creating something from from scratch or I'm doing something that makes an impact to the world because you know, like music these days. A lot of artists don't get hurt, and a lot of things get lost in the noise these days. I mean, it's it's everywhere. It's even for photos, for videos, even for for everything. Uh, a lot of times they get lost. Um, so mm-hmm. I was getting trapped. I was like, "What if I'm not doing music full time? What if I'm doing something else that will help me to motivate motivate me to do music, not as a financial gains or means to survive?" But for purely for creative uh, output, uh, so that's why um, during that time, you know, I was started to thinking, okay, what are other things I can do to, outside of music? Because music turns into something that feels like work to me, you know. Even though I enjoy the process, don't get me wrong, mm-hmm. I I was enjoying doing music at that time, but just something in me just feel like something is missing, that that kind of limits my output with music, especially times like you know I will take. You know, like in, in, in America in general, um, during the Christmas time, it's kind of quiet. It's like kind of like your own time, your family time. 
you're on breaks. No, there's no projects going on. It's really just your own time to kind of figure out what to do next. Right. So like starting from Thanksgiving to uh, Christmas and it, there's been like two years in the row where I was like, okay, I'm not going to do anything. I finally have time to do my own projects. I'm going to lock myself up. I'm not going to hang on with my friends. I'm, uh, I, I don't need to hang out with my family. Let me just like really focus on my own project and I'll put an album or some kind of thing that, you know, that basically say like, it's like my work that I can sh share it to the world. And that never happened. <laughs> never. Because the moment I had that time, <laughs> I was sitting at home. I just don't feel inspired anymore. I was like, I'm trying to come up with something. But I usually hate the work. So then, you know, it, it's, it's, it has been involved a lot since then. Um, and then, you know, I, I accidentally dive into the world of food, uh, marketing, and eventually that led into food photography. And that's quite interesting progress, a uh, process. But then what's really interesting that I learned from food photography was, uh, or just photography in general, I would say, is that the, the most... Um, it's all about capturing the moment, right? I mean, people say that all the time, capturing the moment. But after you capture that moment, even the editing process, everything that comes after is a lot faster compared to like, let's say a music or film, you know, where you would spend hours and hours in post-production or uh, choosing different takes of the vocals to perfect uh, a music. In photography, I would say 90% of the job is actually done the moment you take that shot. Right. I mean, sure, there there are some creative ways to kind of like uh, do some like really crazy Photoshop stuff to make a crazy uh, photography work. But I would say that's more like a digital artist. That's not really a photographer. So the photographer's job of right. outputting something that, uh, you know, like a beautiful bottle of the whiskey uh, with a, with a cocktail, like something like that. Ninety percent of the job is actually done on site the moment before you even hit the shutter. And and Shutter just capturing that moment, and which I find it fascinating, and that has changed my perception of how I should produce music. Surprisingly, because that's how music exactly. used to you be know, produced, right? At, like back I mean, when Beatles, yeah. back when there's just tapes. You know, you just think about capturing the moment. Sure, you can stack different takes together, but it's still about just capturing that moment. And I'm moving more and more towards that um, in terms of like my creative process in music. Basically, in, in short, uh, um, the photography process changes the way I look at how I should proceed with a music process. And if you look at the music that's out these days, mm. um, especially in the pop records, right? Uh, there are a lot of hip hop records that's out there. And if you look at the, the rise of hip hop music from the past, even until now, it's all about that spontaneity. There's no a lot of like post-production work. It's all about, okay, somebody spend 30 minutes, make a beat. That sounds really cool. Okay, one rapper pick it up and it's like, oh, this is dope. They start writing the verses. They they go on the mic and they basically just spit out the verses and that's it. And then they they left. And then the engineer obviously did some cleanups and chew some takes, but more or less the the process of that it's a lot faster than you know, let's say a film scoring and all this stuff. It's a lot of just instant work that's being outputted. Uh, and that's why there's so much output. If you see a lot of rappers who are very affluent in their own niche or their, their albums or mixtapes, uh, their output is insane. They, you know, like they can stay at some place to record one week at their studio and output like 30 songs out of nowhere. 
uh, you know, and not not all thirty of them are hits. You know, like you know, all of these hip hop records just kind of goes away anyway. Uh, but it's the quant the the sheer quantity of the output is incredible. You know, and I think a lot of people, um, especially when uh, when you are like an aspiring artist or songwriter who want to get started in the music industry, you always think about. Oh, I have this amazing song, and I want to make it to be perfect. I want to produce a certain way, and then you know they start hiring producer, they start hiring a bunch of people, and then they they're not satisfied with it, and they revise it again and again. When in fact, uh, and then oh, and then their their whole year, they spend a year perfecting that one song, and then when you ask them how many songs did you write this year, and they will tell you three, five. Then you know when in fact they they shouldn't be spending time perfecting that song. They should be writing more songs. <laughs> That's the truth of it. Because the moment you start writing <laughs> more songs, you your taste start to evolve, and the the things that you do start to evolve. And you know, like a lot of things is learning by doing. You, and if you don't do enough, uh, then you know you're not good enough in some ways. It's kind of interesting, but. You, does yeah. the does the does the perfection in the music production has the, the this experience with the photography? We've talked about it on this podcast a little bit that sometimes perfection can uh, it can really steal away from the art. Like it can it can mm -hmm. have a diminishing return. Uh, when digital music first started happening, they used the example of Madonna's Material Girl, and they said one of the problems with that track is the first. Uh, a reframe sounds like the second and the third and the fourth. Mm. They're all they're identical, and, and that was identified early on as a problem. I mean, that, those were early shaky days of of learning that using that stuff. But does perfection have a diminishing return for you um, based on what you just said? No. So, if you achieve perfection in the first time you try, then great. That's that's awesome, and it happens sometimes. You know. Uh, there, there will be that miracle magic moment where you just try to do something and it was perfect. Then if it's perfect, then don't touch it. Right. It's, it's when you're trying to perfect something like forcefully and spending times and times trying to perfect it, but you couldn't, and you're still trying to find ways to do it. That's when you should not do that. Because that's when, you know, like something's already <laughs> like imperfect, but that's, you should accept the way it is <laughs> rather than trying to forcefully perfect something that's supposed to be imperfect. If that makes sense. That's interesting. It, it feels a little bit, I mean, from based on what you're saying, <clears throat> it, it feels a little bit like uh, the creative process to a degree. And I've, I've experienced that, you know, particularly in uh, studio recordings or, or writing stuff that the happy accidents are a big part of the, of the, of the direction of the creative process anyway. And it's, and to a degree, it's like you'd mentioned about the rappers, just, just crushing out uh, content, uh, go, go, go just a content stream. The thing that I'd, I'd love about that concept is that it it's you're exercising the creative muscles the whole time and welcoming and we're just by by the sheer uh, statistics of it you're going to make a ton of mistakes but in within those mistakes are going to be things that you would not have been able to create uh, preemptively they weren't part of your creative process but when they happened you heard the magic in them you heard something about that accident that triggered another thing 
and I, and it, sometimes I you know, like when you were talking about okay, I wrote three songs this year, and I I really ground them down into this thing that I think uh, sounds like sonic perfection. It there's no room for happy right. accidents anymore. You know, it's it, there isn't that's that's no longer part of the of the that's no longer an informative part of the creative process. You've kind of relegated those to the periphery and and framed them as. Uh, as negative aspects of your process, when in fact, I think that they're absolutely critical parts of that type of process. Yeah, seemingly. so like, you know, what's really interesting is, you know, when I'm choosing the vocal takes, right? Let's say if a singer sing 10 takes of the verse, uh, the first take, usually usually the first few takes versus last few takes, uh, one of one of those would be the best. Right, and when I look at those, I'm I'm hmm. listen. I'm not listening to the perfect pitch. I'm listening to the like the perfect performance, so to speak. I'm listening to the emotion, the inflection of the vocals. So let's say take number one has the best feeling of that, meaning you feel the artist, you feel the vocalist, you feel the emotions of what the what the singer, what the songwriter is trying to say. But then let's say if it's out of pitch, like there are a few notes. That's all a pitch. Great. We can fix that with technology now. Let's perfect that because we know we can. And then now you have a perfect take. Right. You know, so by choosing based on emotions and the 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 you know the 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 most important aspect of the what you're trying to convey and then perfect it afterwards because you know the 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 technology advancement can now allow you to do that is the way to go rather than oh that was a really good take. Emotional is perfect, but however, you sing out of tune. Please re-sing it again. Like that's, that's you know, I think that's how people should view a lot of these fixing uh, the advancement of music technology should be seen as an aid to kind of achieve what you want and and fix those little things that that doesn't matter as much in the in the big picture. But you know, when you really listen to it, it, it obviously will bother a listener if you're like out of tune. Or something, unless it's like intentionally out of tune. There are scenarios that 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 works really well, uh, but uh, you know, just want to share my thoughts there, which is kind of a little mixture of kind of like what we're saying of how uh, what should be perfected and what shouldn't be. Well, yeah, that was uh, that's what I was picking up there. That that uh, the technology, if it can serve the purpose of, let's say, you've got the you've got a vocal track, or maybe it's a drum track, or, or a, a guitar part, or, or keyboard parts that's being played uh, live. There is an emotion being conveyed, and it's being conveyed effectively. And there is, and you want to preserve that. You want to you want to have that jump out of the of the headphones or the speaker or whatever it is that you're using to perceive that. Uh, if there are elements, if there are imperfections that help to serve that purpose, a particular bend in a note or a crack in a voice or or something that happened behind the kit that that helped to propel that emotion forward, great, leave them. But if there are if there are flaws that remind the listener that 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 distract the listener from the thread of that emotion, then you at you at, at your disposal at this point you have the opportunity to fix those after the fact whereas before you'd have to scrub the whole track or try to punch in or something like that and and it, it, I, I always kind of felt like in the studio you start by telling the mic what you want to say and you end up and 
in subsequent takes, worrying about what the mic wants mm. to hear from you. And so then you start having, you start trying to reverse engineer the performance to make the mic happy because you're probably sick of the 90th take trying to, you know, play that track down. That's that always got to me where it was like, now I'm, now I'm playing, now I'm playing from my back foot. I'm playing out of fear. I'm playing from a point of anxiety because I just, I just want to get through this track in one piece Whereas the first few takes were like I'm, you know, visceral attack mode, full steam ahead, and you've you've got that. Uh, how often do you run into this as a as a composer, where you um, the thing that's in your head, and you're and it's coming out of you know your fingertips. Um, how often? How do you work through that block where the the first couple of times you've got the structure of the thing down? I've always kind of found that getting through that and continuing to allow that piece to evolve past what you heard the first couple of times. How do you, do you find, do you find that there's a block there where it's like, okay, I, I, I'm not hearing, I'm not hearing past my own Mm. rough draft. I want, I know there's something past that, but I can't necessarily hear past the rough draft. So that's when, you know, Back then, there would, there would be times where I forced myself to keep going, keep going, and adding stuff to it, and then it turns out to be something I don't like. These days, if that happens to me, uh, I just leave it. I let it sit. So basically, I turn it off completely, go do something else, come back the next day, or just a few hours later, then see how I feel. And usually, I'll have completely brand new um, experience with it. Um, I, I learned this from a masterclass for this uh, very famous uh, hip hop producer called Timberland. Uh, he says mm-hmm. whenever he he finishes a record, his his way to know that he finishes it is by shutting it off, go outside, and then come back in and play it on the spe- uh, on any other speaker than the one that he was using, and then just listen to it as he's doing something else, not as an active listener but a passive listener. To see how he feels about it does the music grab his attention does it make him want to dance you know that kind of stuff uh which i i find it it's right. very very important to kind of um you know i i think as a musician or like engineer in general you always start to analyze music the moment you hear it and it's becoming it's harder and harder to just you know listen to music by itself and see what what how you feel so hmm. um it's always a big dilemma, but but like the more you know, the la- the the more you have to let go in some ways. Um, but yeah, that's 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 my position on that. Well, and I have to tell you, in listening to the things that you've uh, listened to some of your recordings, uh, when you're talking about all the possibilities in recording right now, and you just talked about doing more and more to something than backing away from it. Uh, the thing I heard through everything uh, is a, a lot of restraint, and it, which is not something you hear through a lot of things today. You hear kind of like, I got all the tools. I'm going to fire them, all the rockets at once. And uh, um, I heard just the opposite of that. That, that was the, There was continuity I heard through things uh, of your recordings that I really liked because some of these things are so compressed and so in your face 
that they that there's there's too much and uh, I talk about this too much, but I like space in music and 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 musicians and producers comfort with space in music, allowing that to happen. Uh, and, and and I hear I hear that I hear that in your Thank stuff. Thank you. It's a go yeah. ahead then. I yeah you know, I was uh, absolutely going to concur with that. The like the um, that the the tracks of yours uh, the, you know, that you were directly involved with that you uh, contributed to the to the collaborative version of the playlist. And by the way, there is a playlist. There is a Spotify playlist that is the companion playlist for this podcast. Uh, that we like uh, to forget to mention. We forget to mention that, uh, <laughs> and our our guests on the on the podcast contribute to it, and then we share that on the public playlist. So please check that out um, uh, when you can, dear listener. Uh, but uh, to Kurt's point, uh, modern music does have uh, not all of it clearly, and yours certainly not. Uh, but if there's a knock on it, it's the 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 amount to which everything is compressed into a very small dynamic bandwidth. Uh, so that the so the dynamic range is almost eliminated, so that everything is pushed up to the front of the mix. Everything's got its own point. Everything has got its own place to live in the mix uh, in terms of the you know its frequency spectrum. But everything is squashed just all to hell. And the and what you contributed of your own and of the other artists that you contributed to the playlist, there's air there, there's space there, there's patience. Uh, there's a there's a warmth to it. That's that the uh, the journey, the track that you'd that you'd suggested we listen to first. Um, what I, I loved the the amount of um, mashup happening there, but I really loved how tastefully mm-hmm. it was done, uh, how seamlessly it was done. You could hear the different influences, but each of those influences, even though they're pretty disparate influences worked really well with one another uh, and the the guitar stuff that was happening towards the end of that track it was just it was just brilliantly laid down even though mm-hmm. it was very sort of uh and it was it was interesting to see steely dan as the <laughs> third track because the 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 end of the, the the end of guitar parts on track one had a very larry calton uh, Ste- uh steely dan vibe to them the point that i looked at that was like geez was that him <laughs> uh, that that tone the tone carried through uh, the, the we were just talking about keyboard stuff and uh, the the timbre of a Rhodes uh, piano versus an actual you know of a full strike the string kind of piano it sets a different it sets a different mindset and there's uh, the that Roy Hargrove uh, piece and I, sadly I didn't realize that he had died so young and and not all oh, that wow. long ago uh, brilliant trump, trump trumpet player he had died in 2018 Man. which I didn't. Yeah. I didn't realize he was less than 50 when he passed away. But the name of that album was Ear Food. And I just loved yeah. that concept. Uh, it's it's such a cool sort of cornucopia. All of these things, to, to Kurt's point, they, yeah. they breathe. And they've, they've got real life in them and, and real warmth and uh, a fragility to them. They're, they're, they're not afraid to wear some emotions on their sleeve. Damn, that, the lyrics for that Steely Dan track get dark. <laughs> it's such an oxymoron, right? Yeah, I, the, the song is, yeah. sounds happy. It sounds chill. It's a bright, happy yeah. tune, and you dig into the lyrics. It's like this is horrid tragedy. Wow. Oh, I, I just, I just had that. I just had that experience. Uh, uh, you know, uh, if you think about Paul Simon's Graceland, very old album now, of course. But you think about Graceland, the title track, and it's kind of bouncy, right? It's bouncy. Yeah. Well, upon the death of Steve Earle's son, Justin Towns Earle. He had done an acoustic version of that, 
just a singer-songwriter kind of rendition of that. Yeah, the song is very tough. The song is not bouncy. I don't know. I'd be interested, in, Byron, if you listen to that one. It's like, how did you how did you look at the lyrical content of that song and produce it as it was produced? Uh, I mean, there, there's a lot of most good pop stuff is, you know, pretty depressing stuff, and I understand that. But this one is so <laughs> far afield. Uh, yeah, I, think, I don't know. Like that song, uh, I, I kind of when when I listened to that song the first time, it was the drums that kind of and the timbre of the records. I was like, mm-hmm. wow, this is so nicely recorded. Uh, I think I think I believe this album won a Grammy. I believe, um, but uh, yeah. So I, I I was actually just astonished by the sound quality of this recording, especially. Uh, given that when it was released, I forgot the year, but it was quite early. I think it was like 2000s or something. And I was like, wow, it mm-hmm. sounds like a record from 2018. Uh, the studio. Wait, which record are we talking about? Doubt. Yeah. Okay. Hey, can I ask you? I, I, I have this written down as a question. I, don't, I hope this is not asking too much. Uh, you don't have to spend a lot of time. There isn't enough time on it. Can you sell me on Steely Dan? Just, <laughs> I only just, like this can album, you just... by the way. Only this album. So there's something about this whole album that just, I mean, not only the lyric content of the the Gene Runaway, which I I start really thinking about it um, like a couple years ago because uh, my English wasn't that good in the past. (laughs) You know, English uh, has always been kind of like my second language. But at this point, I speak enough English that's kind of like balanced now uh, compared to like Mandarin. Um, Yeah, I'm from Well, you're from Great Neck. but I mean, that's when that's when my <laughs> understandable uh, my 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 journey in uh, being a New Yorker really begins. I mean, I was born here, um, but then you know I kind of went back to Taiwan for a bit, and then kind of came back here. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so so Stevie Dan, it's really just that record that like, it was produced in such a way uh, that was so nicely done that I fall in love with it. And then now I listen to the lyrics; it obviously right. intrigues me <laughs> even more. Uh, just it's just an interesting combination that 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 makes me fall in love with it. You know, you mentioned New York, the picture of you virtually alone in Times Square on Instagram. Uh, and you, 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 by the way, you're, you're the way you caption things at nice, uh, like the, I should play piano more, uh, didn't really address the fact that you're at Quincy Jones house <laughs> playing his piano, but uh, going back to the, uh, going back to the, taking uh, that to one, York side. one, taking that to the side, uh, uh, so I'm just fan geek out on, on that, but uh a nearly empty times square tell us about new york today well today maybe. i will say new york is back <laughs> the past uh, couple weeks Good. yeah since back. uh um uh, yeah i don't know i don't know something happened about new york i mean we are slowly opening up uh but at this point i will say official new york is back if you are on the weekend if you go to times square if you go to central park it's pretty packed you do see some reminiscence of uh the unfortunate things that have happened uh in 2020 like a lot of businesses are still closed uh you still see a lot of commercial spaces empty you don't see office being occupied just yet uh but in terms of like people are trying to have a good time they're definitely having a good time right now and i would say any restaurant uh, or any bar well bar of course but any restaurant that sell uh liquor basically just allows you to drink is usually packed and if you don't sell any alcohol 
uh, I'm sorry, you're probably losing a lot of money, uh, which is kind of crazy. <laughs> but uh, people love drinking these days. I don't know what's going on, but I think it's it's a sense of liberation. I don't know that that's entirely <laughs> yeah, new. No, it's definitely not new. <laughs> I'm not sure. uh, but but it's, it's especially uh, prominent during this time. Like it's it just feels obvious. You see the difference. You know, let's say if you're on a block where yeah. there are like five restaurants and two restaurants don't serve any alcohol, and then the other three does, and you see those three being packed outside in and out with lines, and then the other two just kind of like somewhat empty, uh, which is kind of dramatic. But that's the truth right now. I. I guess I I did uh, you know we noticed certainly over the over the course of the of lockdowns and pandemic in general that sales of Lamorgan went through the roof. Then I feel like that was it wasn't necessarily a, a coping mechanism so much as it was people figuring out I'm going to be here for a while and I need to <laughs> right. restore some quality of life that that I I I need to pursue that quality of life in. in through a different channel, but in the same sort of way. Nowadays, it does feel as though um, communal mm. drinking uh, has sort of been a lot of people's mm. goalpost in terms of, I will start to feel, I remember, I remember reading somebody saying, when they start giving samples away at Costco again, I'll feel like we're getting back to normal. <laughs> uh, That's an awful for, example. but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like, okay, I kind of get that, but Going out and and drinking mm. communally has has felt to me like I just just sort of reading the tea leaves of what you know the what's out there in social media and such the enthusiasm for that and I've been you know I've I've had this opinion for a while now that that bars and restaurants the communal drinking environments are uh, the the first line of defense against uh, the dissolution of society uh, there's, there's a lot of forces outside of those environments that want to drive people apart and want to sort of uh, foment hatred and stuff. But when you're in a communal drinking environment, there's something that repairs the social fabric there. And I think people either consciously or subconsciously need to be reminded of that. They need to see it as a finish line, not a finish line, but the first goalpost that indicates that normalcy is some form of normalcy is ahead. And so, yeah, I, I think the enthusiasm for that makes people in that in that situation go, okay, progress is being made. I am with my fellow citizen enjoying a communal drink, and there's something healing about that, even if it's even if it doesn't consciously remind a person, hey, I want to hang out with other people. It's deep seated in the race to want to hang out with other people, even if it doesn't manifest itself in a direct conscious thought. Those are the places where it happens, and those are the places where we meet each other eye to eye and discover that we just can't be that dissimilar from one another. I think it's I think it's it's great to hear that yeah, that's happening in New York. That's actually the human nature, I would say. You know, I think in general, um, from you know all the way in the past back to like Rome until now, society in general, I think uh, it's always about people and the community. You might say, well, there are a lot of people working from home and, you know, in front of the computer all day, but that's still a sense of community. You're connecting with people virtually, right? But there's, there's still people on the other side. Yep. Even if you're just watching YouTube videos all day, you're still watching somebody telling you something. Then that's still a communal aspect. I feel like uh, in this way, it's actually, if you look at it that way, we're actually more connected than ever because we're always connecting, which is kind of scary, you know? Um, uh, especially with the cell phone, right? Like, um, 
which is kind of crazy because you know I'm I'm doing my own production company uh, for media, social media, and all this stuff, and also music, and also I have to communicate with client. Uh, I think at most in one day I have communicated with a hundred human beings in one day. Separately, <laughs> I'm not talking about I'm at an event telling talking to like ninety people. No, I'm talking yeah. about separate scenarios. Yeah. Just what it is texting, Bloody quick phone hell. call, a quick text, or approving yeah. something, or pitching a project, like all this stuff. I was like, wow, I'm talking to a hundred people in a day, and they're all across different places. And I was like. Wow, this is incredible! You know, like we're living in the world where things are moving like ten times faster than before. It's just, yeah, it's it's crazy. It's crazy. Well, it's, pe- it's people nuts. want to be be de- people want to be together. You, you'll hear parents say that they're worried how much their kids are mm-hmm. on their mobile phones. And I read a kind of a contrary piece that said, "Hey, you know what? It, it, it's it's not the fault of the kids that are on the mobile device." Hey, parents, there's a good chance that you don't, as you know, people used to go to the a school near their house. They used things were a little more localized. Now people, because of all kinds of things, can live, you know, different distances. Kids are just trying to be together. And if you moved out, t- you know, 12 miles from the school and the kids in seventh grade, they're just trying to be with their friends. They're just trying to be together. And I think you're right. There's been, uh, I mean, there's probably been more communication than there would be. You couldn't get to a hundred people, even in New York in close proximity. Yeah, no way. It's just, it's, it's crazy how the world has evolved, you know, um, and the whole communication aspect. Um, there was a thing I wanted to touch on uh, related to that before I, we're, we're coming up on uh, an hour, but I, I wanted to get to this idea. Uh, so you're, you're a musical director, I believe for playground sessions. Uh, and uh, I mean, it, listeners check it out, playground sessions.com. It's a, it's a fascinating concept. And I'm wondering, did as that existed before the pandemic and now it's still here. Did people with time at home decide that they wanted to learn to play piano. I mean, did you see a spike in interest in that concept during the pandemic? Uh, I'll just say in brief, we tripled our revenue last year, (laughs) (laughs) which is insane. Um, We never expect that, but it was, it was quite incredible. Um, uh, To speak of that though, um, one interesting project that we did is uh, we did like a, communal where everyone can record uh their own performance of uh the song you raise me up uh you can google it uh you can put it on youtube you'll find it it's basically yeah so like with like, yeah, I, saw you know, that. like I think uh the total submissions will have like over a couple thousand and then that was a uh there's also a behind the scene video that i i did uh which kind of uh, went through like how I mix like I think like a thousand piano tracks together. Uh, some are like phone recordings, some professional, <laughs> wow. professional recording. It was quite interesting. It was, it was quite a fun project to do. Uh, and um, yeah, I mean, just that that whole. Um, I think when people are at home, I mean, even for me, I think it really gives us a time to reflect and rethink what we're actually doing, especially I think being in New York, it's always just go, go, go project after project, project after project, things after other things, hanging out with friends and then go back to work. Um, even now it's, I started to feel like that again. Um, but there was like a good month, like especially I think during March when everything just shut down 
you really started to like rethink. It's like, what am I doing in my life? What is, is this, is this, <laughs> you know, what should I be doing? And then, um, you know, I think, um, here's a, a statistic that came out, um, I think from Yamaha, uh, which we talk about all the time. It's like 50, uh, no, I think 90% of the keyboard that people bought goes into a closet after two weeks, which is kind of fascinating, uh, wow. fascinating stats, but that just shows a lot of people who are trying to learn piano um, or who try to learn music in general, they're aspired to do that. But the moment they start touching it, they start doing it, uh, they give up. And, you know, life gets in the way. There are other more important things to do. And then they they move on from that. Um, and there are people who come back. So uh, that's kind of like the mission on Playground Session is how can you get addicted to playing music, learning music, right? We basically help you the process of from zero to becoming uh, aspiring pianists that you look up to uh, by doing, um, you know, utilizing technology, learning uh, in the step-by-step -step method that's interesting and engaging enough to keep you continue playing. And the moment you feel like, wow, like I already accomplished something, you already done like hours of work, you know, because it was fun. It was interesting to, to, to learn. So that's kind of like the mission behind uh, playground session is um you're not trying to learn to play you're playing to learn so the the whole aspect of you know uh i think in music in general it's uh it's meant to be played like the moment you're being part of the music you're enjoying the the playing process having a good time uh it's it's, it's the key to kind of keep you sustained to this music uh endeavor in general so uh that's what we're trying to trigger basically trigger everyone's inner self like what's the the that secret recipe to make somebody who want to be to want to learn music who want to play music and continue to doing that uh, without us forcing it, you know? Um, so it's, it's it's a fascinating thing, right? And we've been having a lot of data and uh, trying to figure figure that out. But so far, we know it is kind of working. So that's why that's why uh, we, we'll continue doing it. Yeah, that's fantastic. I I kind of felt like. Um, uh, just looking into some of the some of the techniques and, and some of the structures of what you what you guys have built with playground sessions, uh, it does feel as though you've turned the process on its head uh, and and tried to emphasize the idea that this is supposed to be a connective thing, a a, a, a release of creative energy uh, first, and then we'll we'll get to where the where the technique is growing and being refined but it's got to feed the soul from the beginning or there's no if, if it's all pedagogy then the, you'd lose you lose people almost almost right away i was always kind of felt like uh people dancing that is a release of energy that i've always kind of mm. tied to well it's because they can't play you know they want to interact with the music but I, you know, that what you guys are building, I do think that it um, it serves a greater purpose uh, than just making people into piano players. Um, I, I <laughs> yes. think that it's yeah. it gives people it gives people a functional uh, way to into to interact with the music in a way that they've never been able to before. And I think that's that's incredibly important. Yeah, that's 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 the goal. We we definitely are trying to do other instruments as well. But uh, a lot of times we just realize like the technology is not there. Right. You know, um, if you think about like pitch detection, uh, you know, or how to play guitar, um, 
did the the we, we care a lot about the interactive aspect of uh learning how to play music so if you look at you know because a lot of people will argue it's like oh what what's so different between you guys uh playground sessions compared to a youtube video right somebody on youtube just simply teach you how to play a c major chord how to play this how to play that well the difference is that interactive feedback right, right. and also learning how to reach your music in real time uh, I think that's that's one part that a lot of uh, similar competitors uh, would say don't do as good of a job as as we do. Is that you know uh, there, there's always trade back uh, um, of of these type of things. So for example, you can have really cool animated uh, blocks of uh, colors for notes. So so think about like Guitar Heroes. You know that's a, yeah. a really good example of that. You know you see the folding blocks and you press the key. Great, you have a success. But when you look at a real piece of sheet music, are you able to play that? No, it, it completely went out of picture. So mm-hmm. we kind of have to strike. We are our, our, uh, the way we design our um, our curriculum is really try to strike the balance between okay, you're actually learning how to read sheet music. There is some technicality to it, but because the music is fun and because there is some interactive. Uh, feedback that tells you, oh, this is right, this is green. You know, when you press the right note, it turns green. When you press the wrong note, it turns red. Uh, so it re- removes the 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 feeling of uh, you have to count the time. You know, like you know to keep in time. Uh, the the software is doing that for you. And then there's a whole band, there's a backing track, like a whole orchestra um, that kind of plays along with you to kind of give you that confidence. Wow, that you're playing something substantial. I think uh, those things kind of. Um, Basically, kind of help you to learn, actually learn how to reach your music and play on the piano. Uh, it's fun enough, but at the same time, it doesn't get to the point where it feels like it's too gamified that you can only live in the program. You know? Yep. Yeah. You know what's interesting? You mentioned it about uh, sound engineering earlier, just uh, your desire to teach. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, one of our previous guests, two of our previous guests, musicians, and they both have a passion for teaching. They want to pass this. They want to pass this on. That seems to be the drive here more than a business model. Yeah, no, I mean, um, that's, you know, I mean, the reason why I'm, um, I love playground sessions that I'm still in the project is the moment when you see somebody who been using the program for years and hours and then they finally perform something. And you're just like, wow, they literally did not know how to play piano three months ago. And now they're performing, you know, the Beatles, or Elton John, Rocket Man, and then or like Coldplay Yellow. And then they practice for hours and hours. And just the moment when I hear that story, it's or when I see the video of them performing, it's uh that's that's something else. That's I think that's the same feeling as a, a teacher seeing the student achieve something amazing or you know, when you are the artist who in the live concert and you see the audience sing your song, you know, that's, I think that's like the very similar feeling. And then that's, that, that motivates me a lot. I think, you know, at the end of the day, when you trying to create something, uh, you know, even for photography or for food, uh, as restaurant, as a chef, uh, is really to make a changes to, uh, make an impact to the world. Right. And sometimes that impact could be quite small, uh, you know, just to a person or uh, to uh, an object, but that impact is what um, I would say motivates a lot of people to keep going. You know, it's a 
it's quite astonishing how how that mechanism works in humans. But uh, I just love that aspect of it of um, being inspired by what actually works and seeing seeing people really enjoying it. Yeah, that's that's the part that that really gets me every that's time. That's awesome. Yeah, that's that's, awesome. that's an admirable the thing that you've that you've all built there is is admirable, and I'm sure that it's added appreciably to the uh, quality of life of the of thousands of people at this point. I'm I'm intrigued as hell. Uh, I'm I'm about to restart seriously playing drums after. I mean, I've played for a long time, but I've never had a kit at home. And that's going to change this month. So I'm actually taking the time nice. to rebuild my fundamental technique as if I'd never played the kit before. Uh, and and I'm I'm looking for I'm dreading it because I you know feeling like a rank amateur is never fun. But I I do I'm really excited to, to get started with it. it. Sounds like that's what you deliver to people every day. So uh, obviously, and um, it's it's funny that you say that because uh, I'm actually. Uh, going to pick up piano very soon as well. Trying to go back to you know learning and playing different things. Really dive back into like just piano playing in general. That's something that I haven't been doing for a while. Uh, but um, um, fortunately, um, I have an opportunity to uh, learn from um, the David uh, Bowie's uh, pianist. So he he collaborated with Playground Sessions for uh, for a while now for ads and uh, a bunch of things. Wow. And, um, and then, uh, as a as a company bonus, I want the the bonus of having private lessons with him. So uh, I just <laughs> nice. need to save nice. all the time yeah. to uh, to to work with him. But uh, wow. yeah, that'll <laughs> yeah. Be so that would be fascinating. Quite a, Holy cow! That would be super fun. Wow. Yeah. That uh, that's uh, and I imagine that you will you'll document some of that and maybe share it uh, your social media channels or. Or, oh, maybe, maybe. Because I, I know it would be done virtually, that's for sure. Oh, right on. Uh, so, yeah. yeah. How, wait, I, b- both of you guys, Dan, you're a great drummer. I, I, Byron, I've watched, I've watched you play uh, play keys. I, I, how are you guys going to mentally sort of say, I don't know what I'm doing and rebuild? How, how would you set aside the years and years of, of technique and habit and all that? Is it just a mental thing? Mm-hmm. Byron, I'm, I'm going to let you take that. I've got a few ideas, but yeah, I'm interested in what you've got to say about that. I say that again. Uh, the, the question. The, well, I mean, how how how, how are you going to pretend like you're starting over? Oh, you don't. <laughs> okay. You just. You just answer. I understand that one better. <laughs> no, you just add on top of it. Really, that's that's okay. That, you, but but you have to, you know, like. I would say like learning instruments in general, like once you learn one instrument, it's a lot easier to learn another instrument because I mean, not only they share the same language, like music in general, like, you know, the key signatures, uh, how to read music or rhythm, so to speak, like all that stuff kind of interconnect. Right. But um, a lot of times uh, when you start again, it's really say to, to look at like, okay, like for example, I, I know my piano playing is limited at this point because when I look back at all the stuff that I play, or if you tell me to jam for like an hour, I can easily do that. But then it always feels like the same thing again and again. That's when I know, okay, I need to, I want to develop something else. I want to open up another door for me that will trigger different type of playing. You know, um, I, I always love like Oscar Peterson's playing and I'm never able to achieve that right now. But if I 
learn, really try to learn his solos, his uh, or even trying to do, you know, dictation and all that stuff. Um, eventually, I'll understand that language, and then that become part of my language. And all of a sudden, I got that playing ability to do that. You know, where like Latin jazz, bossa nova. There's a lot of these like different niche that you can go into to kind of open the doors for your playing. And then when you go back to pop music, you're gonna play differently. You know, when I was, I started as a classically trained pianist. And when I first started, you know, trying to play pop music, it was all very just like triadic movement, you know, one, three, five, broken chords, all this stuff. But I don't know any of the extension notes that really adds color uh, to the music. And I was finding fascinating. I was like, oh, why is that artist play the D there? That's that's a C chord. Why is the D? And I, I couldn't understand it. But then the moment I learned jazz and blues, I was like, this all makes sense now. It's just a different type of musical language. Uh, but once I understand it, now I'm playing all these crazy jazz chords that I never imagined I play, and then it just feels natural to me. Like the the, the eleven seven, uh, you know, eleven um, a diminished seven minus a flat five, and all this all these crazy chords uh, just start to make sense. So you know, I think it's all about opening a new door for for you to find a different path to uh, to continue your music journey. Really. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's obviously studying with, with Bowie's keyboard player. <laughs> well, certainly because, you know, the way that Bowie tracks were, uh, were assembled, there were always surprises, always musical surprises and modulations into different territories and ways of coming out of, of chord changes that you, that were the unexpected. Uh, I, I always loved that about uh, the sensibility behind Bowie's music. I think for, for me, uh, much like what you're saying, uh, the benefit of being, uh, uh, you know, having played as long as I have and uh, being as old as I am, um, I'm a lot Which more, is really an advantage. It is at this point, with the exception of you know, <laughs> pain in my knees and back and stuff. But um, the thing I'm much more uh, aggressively aware of where the holes in my fundamental technique have kept me back. Uh, whereas mm. when I was building my fundamental technique before, it was the impatience with it that created the holes in the first place that limited my ability to expand my my musical horizons and musical vocabulary. And now I know where they are, when they happened, and exactly what they kept me from. And the, and mm. that's now and I've I've sworn revenge on them all. <laughs> yeah, Kurt. You know. Um, I can give a perfect example of that because uh, when I was start playing jazz, I'm trying to play fast. In general, I just, I, I mean, who doesn't want to play fast? Sure. It's fun, right? It's good sure. to show off, right? It's impressive. <laughs> uh, but I couldn't. I just, uh, my fingers were hurt. My hand were hurt. Uh, it was only when I met uh, John Colliani, who is the pianist of Last Paul. Oh, and right he is well, he has one of the fastest piano player. If you Google his stuff, he, he's insane. He he plays super fast and super precise. He has like kind of like a John Coltrane style background, but just the way he plays is amazing. And uh, I I saw him at a show at, uh, when Last Paul was still there. Uh, Last Paul was doing show at Iridium at Times Square. I am uh, so jealous. You and got I was those. incredibly impressed by his playing. And my dad was there. My dad was like, "Why don't you just ask him for a lesson?" And I did. Nice. <laughs> and I ended, up having three, I, have, I ended up having three lessons with him, and that three lessons changed my life for, wow, that's for piano playing. He, he, he saw me playing for a little bit, and then he was like, 
okay, uh, you want to play fast, right? And then he was showing me off all these crazy patterns, crazy things that he was doing. And then he taught me about five little, like, founded. He has a book, by the way, you can check it out, which is these techniques are in his book. Uh, it's like, yeah, you should try these exercises and it will change the way you play. Wow. And then I was like, okay. And they, they're like very stupid exercises, not like playing C major skills. It's like, like really weird wrist exercise on the keys to help you stabilize and relax your whole arm and hand, your fingers. Right on. Right? Um, and then I was doing that. And, you know, during that time, I was applying college. So there was this, like, high school, like, my senior year. No, junior year in high school. And then, you know, I was trying preparing for, like, you know, like, college uh, interviews and all that stuff. So I have to, like, there's, like, requirement. I have to play certain, like, classical pieces and jazz pieces to showcase my piano playing ability. And... During that time, I was using his exercise to warm up every day. After a month, I saw a completely change. And wow. all of a sudden, I feel like my... It's like that that limitation just all of a sudden lifted. I can play whatever I want now. I can play fast. And even if I side read a fast passage, if I practice twice and I'll be able to do it, you know, I'm able to hold like a, a trail for like two minutes and then don't feel tired on that. And that's... Oh, because I, I was missing that ingredient, that 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 part that that allows me to like open up that door. Um, so so yeah, there we go. It's uh, I think every time now when I have a chance, have an honor to uh, learn from a mentor, a, a really aspiring a musician, uh, that's what I'm looking for. I'm I'm looking for what's that thing that 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 was missing on my end, and also what's the thing that they have. That, that enables them to have such an amazing career or technique or playing ability and trying to really find that that one thing. Uh, and then, you know, when you learn that one thing, you, you, you the, the whole world changed. Like, it's like you start a brand new game in music. Uh, right on. Yeah. that's I'm excited for you, man. That's That sounds like it's going to be... Uh, I, I found a similar guy... Um, uh, our last podcast was with uh, with Kevin Leon, who's the drummer from St. Paul and Broken Bones. And yeah, I'd mentioned to him that I was going to sort of restart uh, the the functional learning of, of drumming again. And he uh, he directed me towards uh, the drumming equivalent of the guy that you just described, sort of the swing coach of of drumming, a guy named Dave Elich. Uh, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna begin uh, taking. And his whole process is he calls it getting out of your own way. Uh, and so that's that's it's it's all exactly the same stuff that you're talking about the the musculature and and the, you know tension being the enemy of speed and 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 other physicality of the instrument and stuff. So yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna I'm gonna feel like an idiot for quite a while, but I think it's gonna help me break through some some barriers I've I've that, had for a long time. It definitely will. It definitely <laughs> will. Because um, yeah, yeah, when the moment when that happens, it it totally. Uh, blew me away uh, even for singing too you know i wouldn't say i'm a professional singer but i love doing you know karaoke if you guys ever been to karaoke um but you know i met a guitar uh, i was learning guitar at the time with this uh, guitar songwriter uh and then i was trying to sing and then i was like hey and do you have any tips for singing uh, because i couldn't sing like any high note like my throat hurts all this stuff i feel restrained and he was like oh let me see you breathe and then I was like, oh, yeah, you have to breathe from your stomach, not from your uh, chest. Because, you know, like there's different ways of breathing. And if you don't breathe through your diaphragm, you basically have shorter ear and all this stuff. And and I was like, that's it? And he was like, yeah. <laughs> and then 
And then it took me like two weeks to like really like change that, like to gain to the habit of breathing from, you know, your diaphragm, your stomach, basically like your lower body. And yeah. And after that, my singing range literally doubled, wow. you know, which is like crazy. And then, I'll, and then it continues to grow and all this stuff, but that was it. That was like one simple thing that, you know, it just wasn't being discovered. I didn't know. I didn't know what it was. And then, he was a good singer and he just told me, yeah, you, you're not briefing it correctly. And that was, wow. <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah. So, um, that's, uh, man, I'm, I'm excited to get started. Uh, this is, this has been a very enlightening conversation. Um, I knew that, uh, knew that there were many, many dimensions to you, uh, as a, as a musician and, uh, as a, as you know, the technical aspects of music production, but I had no idea the amount of stuff that you're actually up to. So, uh, um, we can't thank you enough for your time uh, spending it here with us on the podcast. Uh, you can be found on, uh, of course, at uh, zenithmusic.com. You are uh, at zenithmusic on uh, Instagram and Zen is Food on Instagram. Uh, Kurt, you are uh, Hey Prosman on Instagram. Uh, and I'm uh, Glenn Modan on Instagram. Uh, we thank everybody uh, for tuning in to this podcast. Uh, we'll be back again next month. And we hope to hear you uh, back uh, with us at that point. In the meantime, check out the uh, the companion playlist and have a look at these very cool tunes that Byron has added to our uh, to the show's playlist. Uh, that I've, I'm fascinated by them. Kurt, you added a few today as well. Uh, so, uh, Kurt, thank you for your time. Byron, obviously, uh, thank you. We'll be working, I think, together uh, in the future on some whiskey stuff. Uh, but uh, I've had a blast. Uh, and uh, thanks you, thank you both for helping me uh, make this thing happen, Byron. Thanks so much, man. Great to meet thank you. you. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been a quite a delighted conversation. I didn't know the time went by so quickly, but that's <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> but you know that's when you know you're having a good time. Right? Exactly. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. We didn't even get to the your cocktail making or uh, cooking. Oh, right. So, yeah, yeah. Maybe another time, man. But, but last but not least, should we talk maybe two minutes on whiskey? Oh yeah, we should. <laughs> Oops. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we we we? Oh, that. oh yeah, that thing. Um. So you've got a little <laughs> what bit. What are we drinking tonight? You got a little bit of signet there, uh, and I just happen to have yeah, some uh, here as well. Uh, what's uh? This is one of the, uh, you know one of the first conversations that we had. I uh, discovered that this is one of your favorites. Uh, what what is yeah. it? What is it about Signet that that sort of captures your attention? Um, two things. I think a lot of times I so my main preference on whiskey is drinking straight with a splash of water. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Signet tastes great like that, but it also tastes quite different and amazing with ice. Uh, and it almost tastes like iced coffee, so to speak. Totally. Uh, I don't know if there's actually caffeine in it. Maybe maybe there is. Then I, I don't know the secret. But every time when I drink Cigna, it wakes me up. It just gets oh, me high. good. It gets me excited. Um, yeah, and I tried it with other whiskey. It, it kind of does the same thing, but this one just there's a little bit more. <laughs> it does a little bit more. And and I think the fact that uh, the flavor changes uh, quite uh, differently by itself. Uh, intrigues me a lot because a lot of other whiskey either they flavor profile when they touch the ice tends to be the same just diluted if that makes sense absolutely Uh, but signa it's it kind of takes quite a different character when when they hit the ice so i love that that that's just fun to drink 
our master distillers is a massive proponent of having signet on a on a large ice cube for exactly that reason that it becomes a different sort of an experience leaning more towards those uh mocha notes uh the espresso mm-hmm. notes coming out a little bit more that that deep sort of fudgy chocolatey thing that comes forward uh neat it's a beautiful thing it's bottled 46 abv and the real the real key behind signet is the use of roasted barley so we would take standard mm-hmm. malted barley and then tumble roast it uh like it's a coffee bean uh essentially uh malleard effect browning of of the of the barley grains themselves to add that layer of uh of coffee like richness that makes that whiskey really really unique Ah, yeah, it's it's. That's what's telling me that now I know. Yep. Wow. There you go. <laughs> in, in, its, in its simplest form, in terms of trying to explain why it is what it is, and there's a lot to the assembly of Signet. But if you if you imagine yourself trying to make a whiskey out of a stout or a porter, uh, versus mm-hmm. making a whiskey from a a, a, a a lager or even a pale ale, you get what's happened to that barley. It's been it's been roasted like a coffee bean until it's it's a, a sort of a deep dark brown and then we end up that's that's a component of what becomes uh signet it's it's unlike anything else that we do and uh and i absolutely love it i'm i'm when when we talked the first time i was i was uh, uh very pleased to find out that you're a fan of signet i i i'm, I'm a huge fan yeah, of that was, you know i think that's like one thing that kind of you know tie back to the music conversation is like um if you think about the way the signet tastes, like the you know the espresso notes, the mocha notes, uh, but that's not what it actually is. That's not what it's made from. It's being transformed into this flavor that uh, resemble you know like these type of things. Uh, and the same thing with music. You know, when you first start an idea uh, on a piano or something, versus like what's being put out, finished, and well, how other people consume music, how other people feel, it's quite different. It's been transformed so many times to the point where it becomes a unique experience in itself, which is uh, quite astonishing. And within our portfolio, Signet does that, I think, as uh, more effectively or at least more immersively than really anything else that we do because you taste things, to your point, you taste things in there that you know aren't in there, and yet they're there. And it's it's (laughs) all part of of process and of of a, a predetermined notion that, and it really came about it wasn't a happy accident so much as uh, our master distiller had kind of just sat down and decided, I like coffee. I wonder what would happen if I roasted barley and then made whiskey out of it. And so mm. 25 years later, uh, here we are. But it was, and it it really did start with that kind of, uh, the inspiration came from outside the category and the burning question, what if, became this lovely, lovely thing. And there's really nothing else like it in the in, in all of single malt scotch. So, uh, it's it's uh, it's it's I, not that it was my invention, but it is gratifying to know that you're you're well, picking up what it's what it's laying down. That's awesome. I, I, I'm glad I'm glad that I stayed because <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'll be sad if the uh, scene is gone. And uh, you know, anytime soon. No, you know, it's sticking around. Hopefully it's not going anywhere. No, it's Great. it's a permanent part of the range. You'll uh, uh, you'll be you'll be glad to know, as I will, uh, as I am, that it's uh, that it's permanent and it'll continue to flow. So. Uh, it will 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 stock you up here uh, again pretty quick. 
incredible incredible i'll, I'll shoot some content soon oh um, right on that'd be yeah, great and then we can talk about the next the next set of what what comes next uh after that we will okay. probably be at whiskey fest in new york and i and i am hoping that we can we can get you guys involved and shoot some proprietary video for that but uh that'll yeah. be december november something but we'll we'll chat before then that that sounds good and uh yeah if you if you guys come to new york just let me know i'll, I'll get you guys a, a seat at time bar uh, we're somewhere else and we'll, we'll definitely have a that would be, that would be great that would be great thank you guys thanks again fellas appreciate hey, it thank you have a great evening too. all right bye